Welcome to the Longevity Week podcast hosted by the Longevity Forum. We'll be featuring podcasts all week on the theme, Sustainability in a Decade of Healthy Aging, which you can listen to online at thelongevityforum.com. On this episode, Jim Mellon, co-founder of the Longevity Forum, will be speaking with Henry Dimbleby, co-founder of Leon Foods and the lead on the National Food Strategy Report. Now to you, Jim. Thanks, Laura. And actually, you were just saying to me that your husband used to work at Bain and Company, which Henry worked at as well. And actually, if I might say, Henry's got a very distinguished um, resume stroke CV. He was an actor. I think I'm correct in saying he's written a number of books. (laughs) Well, it doesn't matter. You're an actor. And there's always time to go back to it. And then um, uh, you were a writer of books, particularly focused on cooking. Uh, you were at Bain and Company, and then you and John Vincent together founded Leon, which for people who are not in the UK should know is a very successful chain of healthy uh, and fast food restaurants. And um, recently you sold uh, Leon, or the investors sold Leon uh, along with you as well. Uh, and you've also been tasked by the government on two occasions to uh, develop a national food strategy. And so your profile is very high. And in fact, at the time that the second part of the national food strategy came out, the airwaves and the newspapers were thick with commentary on your proposals. So before we get into that, I want to ask you, as you know, Henry, I'm very keen on this food revolution as well. My motivation is to avoid animal slaughter, number one, the cruelty to animals, which is not the main motivation of most people who are involved in this. What is your principal motivation in being involved in changing food? Well, it's interesting. I kind of came into it backwards. When we started Leon, the intention was to create something that you could get on the go that tasted good and did you good. It was a very selfish project in that sense. John and I were traveling around and at that time in the UK, you get kind of horrible sandwiches in chiller cabinets or absolutely delicious Kentucky Fried Chicken that uh, made you fall asleep and feel terrible afterwards. And we wanted something that we could have that was kind of good on the go. But then the, the more that we dug into our supply chain, the more interested I got in the kind of issues of sustainability. I set up a thing called a not-for-profit. I co-founded called the Sustainable Restaurant Association, trying to help other restaurants become sustainable. You know this, Jim, but it's hard to overstate the impact of the food system on the natural environment. It is the biggest cause of biodiversity loss by far, the biggest cause of freshwater pollution and shortage, the biggest cause of deforestation and the collapse of aquatic wildlife. All of these are created by the food system. And to give you a a sense of the scale, you know, with your interest in, in animals, it is now the case that at any one time, food reared to feed us weighs twice as much as all humans and 10 times as much as all of the wildlife on the planet. The food system just completely dominates the biosphere. And unless we do something about it, um, it, it is literally going to make not just the food system unsustainable, but the human race unsustainable. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, extremely eloquently put. And uh, there are 
you know, we know that 20% approximately, or it's debated, but it's a roughly 20% of noxious environmental emissions come from intensive farming. Uh, intensive farming having been really developed only post the Second World War. We know that 80% of antibiotics go into intensively farmed animals. And we know that water, which is in very short supply in many parts of the world, is being abused in order to feed animals. And in your really outstanding report, I have to say, you also say that you mentioned that the amount of crops that are grown to feed animals, which are inefficient protein to protein converters, is absolutely staggering. And that in itself, if it was reduced, would have a tremendous effect both on the environment and on human health. But I want to ask you, Henry, as part of your national food strategy, you suggested taxes on really bad things for human health. One is, of course, sugar. And you mentioned a three pounds per kilo tax. And the other one is salt. And you mentioned a six pounds per kilo tax, neither of which I imagine is very popular with the main food producers. Boris Johnson came out and said he thought that was, you know, possibly a tax on the poor, etc, etc. Were you disappointed in that response? I mean, how are we going to, I mean, your tax idea is, in my opinion, absolutely correct. We've taxed cigarettes to the point where only 14% of the population smokes compared to 50% in 1945. Surely, your idea of a tax is a good one. And were you disappointed in the government's response to your proposal? Well, you know, Boris was bounced into it on day one of, of he was doing a speech somewhere else and he was asked about a sugar tax. And I think the words he used were, I'm, I'm not in favour of more taxes on hardworking people. I think you could, you know, it'd be hard to disagree with that in principle. The question that we were trying to answer with the tax is, is this an area where you need government intervention? And if so, what is the right intervention? And we make the argument that what we call the junk food cycle, that there is a toxic interaction between our evolved appetites and the food that modern food companies are marketing to us. It's not because they're evil, it's just an easier way to make money. And they have put more and more money into developing and marketing products that are highly calorie dense and which we find our appetite finds very difficult to uh, ignore and tends to eat in higher quantities. We've eaten more of it, they've invested more, and you had a vicious circle. And the question then is, what do you do about it? And funnily enough, the, the CEOs of the food companies behind the scenes say, we cannot do this without government intervention. So if we stop making these highly calorie dense and marketing these highly calorie dense things, other people just will do it and we will lose money and the competition will do the same and, and the, the net result will just be a shift in who's making the money rather than an improvement in the food system. And so they privately say we need government intervention. And then we looked at a whole range of government interventions. And the reason that we settled on the tax was twofold. First of all, there is an enormous opportunity in a lot of these products to reformulate. So it isn't actually the case that the price of the foods goes up. As we saw with the sugary drinks levy in, in this country, a, a tax on sugar in soft drinks, you saw a huge amount of reformulation. So people largely brought the, bought the same amount of soft drinks, but it just had a lot less sugar in them. Uh, and then the second reason that we settled upon a tax, and we worked with 
some really great minds at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, some great economists on this, is that anything else, any other kind of, all the other interventions are very, very prone to rule breaking, to people working it around. So, you know, restrictions on where you can market things, how you can market things. There are always workarounds, whereas a tax is a very pure thing that is felt equally by all of the manufacturers and has the, is, there's the least opportunity to, to work around. And actually, I think it will happen. I cannot see a world in which it doesn't happen at the moment. The, the government thinks that the NHS is going to be spending one and a half times the amount uh, uh, to treat type 2 diabetes that it currently spends on all cancers by 2035. We're going to have to have, make these fiscal interventions. It's just a question of when, how bad do you let the problem get before you act? Yeah, uh, I mean, just to put this in perspective, the incidence of type 2 diabetes in the UK has increased by almost 10 times since the Second World War. And, and the UK is not so bad, actually, compared to other countries. And I've just, as I told you earlier, Henry returned from the Middle East, where nearly half the population is either pre-diabetic or is has full, full uh, you know, type 2 diabetes. This is a, a, an international scourge. See it in Africa as well. So you, the African countries typically, that those that were that, that struggled with malnutrition now have two problems. They have a middle class, an affluent class, where type two diabetes is kind of it's not an epidemic, but it's reaching those kind of that those kind of levels of growth, uh, and malnutrition is gradually reducing. It's still there. So you have both problems in the same population. It's an absolute disaster. So okay, in your report, you talk about. Between 2019 and 2032, the aspirational, the necessity or the combination of both of increasing fruit and vegetable consumption per capita by 30 percent, fiber consumption by 50 percent, reduction in salt and sugar related foods by 25 percent and meat consumption by 30 percent. Does all of that have to be done by government nudge or do you think it will be done by, I mean, I know you're very keen on educating particularly young people and very young people about, uh, you know, eating healthily. Do you think that we're going to have to take some really radical action to get to that point? Yes, I do. So I think there, broadly speaking, there are two transitions that have to be made. One is a transition from, we, we eat 50% of our food is, is ultra-processed at the moment compared to, say, 14% in Italy. And we need to start eating more fresh food with more vegetables. We need to shift that ultra-processed element of our diets down. There's a transition to more natural diets. But the second transition is to make that bad food, less bad for us. You know, we, I don't see, you know, some people say, you know, why are you trying to create alternative proteins, etc.? Why can't you just eat chickpeas, as I think you do, or I think you're fully vegetarian? And the answer is, actually, 50% of the meat that's eaten in this country is eaten in the form of mince in, the, in processed food. And the quickest way that we can save the land and reduce the carbon is by actually using that processed food to help us achieve our environmental benefits. And I don't think a lot of that stuff is going to happen uh, just because consumers want to make the change. So I think you have to have strong fiscal government interventions where 
there is market failure, where there are these feedback loops that are that mean that it is more profitable to do the wrong thing than the right thing, at the same time as investing in education to change the long-term culture, food culture of this country. And people say it's kind of, you know, pan-glossy and it's, it's, it's unrealistic to change our food culture, you know, away from the kind of ultra-processed uh, foods we have today. And to that, I say, well, we've changed our food culture unrecognizably in the last 50 years. And it strikes me that with the right effort and the right you know, uh, both government and company interventions, we can do that again. It, it didn't happen by mistake. You know, we, we have changed our food country intentionally during the Second World War, after the Second World War, and then in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I think we can do it again if we put our minds to it. I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, my dad is 92 years old, grew up in an in a environment of rationing during the Second World War. And I think it did their health, not I'm suggesting rationing, but it did their health the world of good that fairly well, it, it did because other generations yeah and what you forget about rationing obviously is that for the poorest people in society they were suddenly eating much more in those days high quality protein the lack of high quality protein was a real problem and the poorest in society were eating more high quality butter high quality protein more vegetables you know they had been subsiding uh, on a diet that was largely made up of even in those days bread you know and 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 other highly kind of cheap calorific foods of the time so it was a it was a massive fillip to the health of the country rationing yeah yeah um okay so we're moving into luckily we have a confluence of changing technology at the time of greatest need which it's something that happens really throughout history and the changing technology at the moment is that the vegetarian foods that were formerly regarded as sort of cardboard substitutes are getting better and foods like beyond and impossible and corn and so forth as meat substitutes are, are very palatable now and then you've talked about precision fermentation which is going to revolutionize the potentially the dairy industry in a very uh, short space of time and then of course i'm very interested in cellular agriculture which may or may not take time to to develop but we we are in this period when alternative proteins are becoming available to the masses and at just the time when intensive farming is reaching its peak destructive capability on the planet. Does that encourage you? Yes. I mean, I think some of these things, as you say, could be very rapid. So, you know, as you know, uh, about 60%, I think it is, of the milk product that China imports is in powdered form and it is hard to see any world in which as soon as fermented milk protein powder becomes cheaper than creating that by feeding a cow grain and grass keeping it alive for a couple of years and then drying that out and making it into a powder i can't see any world in which that doesn't very very quickly as soon as that it becomes price competitive radically disrupt the dairy industry and i think as i said in other areas as well particularly given the amount of processed food we eat the opportunity to reduce the intensity of protein uh, could be huge i think one of the things that people forget about protein is it isn't the, the kind of the the juggling act that we're trying to do is produce the same amount of food a bit more food 
off the land while at the same time restoring biodiversity and sequestering carbon. And the land is the scarce resource. And so if we that, that juggling act is possible, but we need to use that resource better. We need to stop wasting food uh, as much, but not just throwing it away. There's all sorts of science, new and old, which will help us improve the productivity sustainably on existing land. And then just the, the, the land freed up from not eating as much animal protein is actually, in my mind, almost more important than the methane effects and the effects of the direct carbon emissions for those animals. It's just an insane way of producing food to feed a population of 7.8 billion people. Yeah. So can I ask you what you and your family have done to change your eating habits to reflect this reality? Well, I mean, interesting, my daughter independently, she's, she's nine, became vegetarian uh, about a year ago. Um, she calls herself sushitarian, actually. She also eats, she'll eat sushi and vegetables and that's it. Um, and I think, I think a lot of that kind of, that pressure from the young is going to be very helpful. We now just eat a lot less meat generally. We probably eat meat, you know, one kind of set piece of meat today. One exception is my middle son, who I find it very, he kind of only eats fruit and meat. He's like some kind of caveman. And so he gets a little bit of chicken on the side, but we probably eat 40% of the amount of meat or 60% of the amount of meat that we did five years ago and working on it. And, and actually it doesn't feel, that's the other thing is people kind of, because of the Lancet diet, which you might remember, which kind of said we all had to eat nothing. I think the, the debate got very polarized. It got very, it become a kind of culture war. And I think we can learn from what's happened in electric cars here. If you look at, you know, what Tesla are doing. Electric cars could have been the kind of, uh, you know, the, the cars of people who don't really like cars. But you look at what Elon Musk done, you look at the kind of the shape of that truck that he produced. You know, he made, went right out to make sure that electric cars were actually the coolest cars. And I think in the, in the meat war, we have to be really careful. I think there is a way of moving people to less meat without having to get kind of really fighty around the issue of somehow you're depriving them of a, of a God-born right to, to eat the flesh of another animal. Yeah, well, that's very well put. So I want to ask you just in closing, uh, you know, you've had this amazing career so far and you've, done the definitive national food strategy, which, by the way, I think every other country should look at and adopt. Why, why duplicate the obvious or the, 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 the scripture that works? And uh, what are you going to do next? So um, a part of my life is going to be trying to embed the ideas in the national food strategy. We tried to create both a set of ideas and a manifesto, as well as a specific plan for the UK government. I, I'm really, I got a message from the Swedish government saying that they had read it, that their Department of Food had read it. And I think there's a set of ideas there that themselves can be powerful if spread for, you know, for, for many years to come, separate from the specific UK recommendations. So I'm spending a bit of time doing that. And then uh, in the rest of my time, I, I haven't really worked out yet. I'm, I'm doing a few, I'm helping 
uh, a few friends start businesses in the food space and that kind of thing. But I've been I've basically been doing this full time for two years and have just emerged bleary into the light and haven't quite worked out what the next uh, what the next thing is. Great. Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person in Glasgow at the Longevity Forum event, which you kindly agreed to speak at. And um, that's in about a week's time. See you there, Henry. I look forward to it. Thanks very much indeed. This broadcast has been brought to you by the Longevity Forum as part of Longevity Week 2021. We are very grateful to our sponsors, Juvenescence and Burnbrae. For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.